Thanks, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Emma. Appreciate that. Joe did a great job. Good job, Joe, remembering all those announcements. It's a lot. Appreciated Emma's prayer. That's what our heart is. We want God to speak to us this morning. Happy New Year. It's good to spend the first Sunday of the new year with you here in Utah. My wife is here, so she wasn't here last, Misty, and our kids aren't. They're actually back home in Hawaii. They went surfing yesterday. They sent us a video with our cousin. It was kind of cool to watch them in the water uh, while we were sitting in snow. So I have a picture uh, of them and uh, our family, I think, somewhere. There you go. I don't know if you can see that. My Leah's 12, going on 16. Um, Aria it will be 11 in February, February um, the next month. Masaki is 9, and Isaiah is 6. So yeah, I got a really, really blonde hair boy with really, really, really blue eyes. <laughs> He's awesome. Wish they were here. They're, uh, they're a joy to us, and we miss them, but we're glad to be here with you guys and to be able to take this text, when Emma was reading, I thought she did such a great job. We're going to kind of go through it again and read it. But it's, it's almost humorous when you're, when you're reading that passage because the disciples and Jesus are having this interaction that's just funny. And we're going to walk through that. But I, before we get to that, I want to I think about 2024. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of uh, thoughts and fears going into 2024. What's going to happen this year? It's the election year. I typed that into Google, and I said, what are the fears of 2024? And everything's about the election. Everybody's fearful. There's anxieties. There's worries. And you go into a new year, and you're wondering what's going to happen. The world that we live in is difficult. You turn on the news, and you don't know what to believe. Life is crazy. And life moves at an incredibly fast pace. I was saying my 12-year-old is going on 16. It's like I just remember when she was born. And life just seems to move so fast. And some of the, the quotes on, on Google was, will we face a, a cold war, another cold war? Will we face another, another civil war? I mean, there's all kinds of people just wondering what's going to happen. And I don't know about you this morning, but I have some fears. We had a kind of a difficult end of 2023 with a lot of unknown deaths in our family and friends that we know. And it's like, we didn't expect that to happen. And we don't know what's going to really happen in 2024 and we walk into this going, okay, Lord, verse 33 of the passage Emma just read, we want to take heart and have courage and believe what Jesus has told his disciples because they didn't know what they were going to face. They really didn't understand what was going to happen next. In today's passage, Jesus actually extend his, extends his hand and invites us to himself where he is actually like the eye of a hurricane. Have you ever been in a hurricane? or a typhoon, and, and he is the calm within the storm of life. And so when we see these last words that Jesus says to his disciples in this text, he's about to be arrested, he's about to be tried and crucified, and Jesus' parting words to his disciples before he goes to the cross, verse 33, he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This may seem odd, Fact is, when you read that, you would think that Jesus, knowing he's going to the cross and he's going to redeem us, he's going to conquer sin and death, and, and, and you would think that Jesus would say to his disciples, hey, listen, guess what? Everything is going to be okay. 
You don't have to worry about anything. Everything's going to get easier. But he actually doesn't say that. Instead, what he does is he presents a lot of tension points within this passage. He presents a sobering reality, presents a picture of what life will actually be like after he is resurrected and ascended to heaven. He says, troubles will not go away in this world. In fact, things will actually get more difficult if you say that you follow me. But I need you to remember, despite any of these difficulties, I have overcome. I don't know how you would feel. I mean, I think it's really funny because the the disciples are saying, well, now he's speaking to us plainly. I don't know if you ever met someone that just kind of speaks in parables and dark sayings. I know a few people. And then you're sitting there going, what are you saying? Just tell me what you're saying. But that's what they're talking about. They're like, what are you actually saying? And then they're like, oh, now we believe because you're speaking plainly to us. And he presents a a sobering reality. But the tension actually is felt by all of us here today, not just the disciples who, who actually do want to follow Jesus and walk by faith as pilgrims in this world. It's probably felt by you, and I know I certainly feel it. There's a pastor and theologian named Dane Ortland who says it this way, and I think I might have put it up here. Christianity is hard. One reason for this is the jarring tension between what we say is true of us now that we belong to God and what we experience day in and day out, emotionally, relationally, physically, and all the rest. If we are God's children, we may wonder why there is so much senseless adversity in our lives. Such pain can be disorienting for those seeking to walk faithfully with God. The difficulty is not just that life is painful, but that life is painful despite the spectacular redemptive realities we believe have washed over us. Christianity is hard. Living for Jesus is hard. He knows perfectly well that we're going to encounter these hard times. And so we're going to see this tension throughout the passage Emma just read. I'm going to walk through the text again. But listen to what Jesus says to his disciples and and think about the seriousness of his final words before he goes to the cross. Look at here, verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? They were confused about this statement that Jesus just said about them not seeing him and then after a little while seeing him again. We are not told why they don't just say, hey, can I, can I ask a question? <laughs> they don't really ask Jesus. They, they actually talk amongst themselves. And they're, they're wondering what's going on. They're confused. And so they begin to discuss it with each other. Maybe they thought that, 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 that part of what Jesus said in verse 12, that they really weren't able to bear it yet. Maybe they didn't really know. Perhaps they were just a bit afraid of actually admitting their ignorance. I'm like that sometimes, right? I don't really want to ask a question because it might be a dumb question. But Jesus had, given them, had, had actually given them rebukes in the past, right? Because they were slow to understand and was at, at what he was actually teaching them. But whatever the reason was, they discussed it among themselves. And before we criticize them, I, I think we, we all know that we do that. But here Jesus, the one who knows all things, is telling them something. And, and it's, kind of, it's kind of humorous to me because he actually says to them, uh, I have the answer. And disciples really should have gone straight to Jesus. But you can't hide something from someone who knows all things. Jesus said he knew the question that was on their hearts. So he addressed them directly and then explained himself clearly. I think that, that in just in verse 16 and 17, what brings me comfort is the fact that Jesus knows all things. 
He knows what's on my heart. He knows what's on your heart. And even though my tendency is to go run to a friend or to a a group of people that I want to talk to, that actually Jesus goes, I'm right here. You can come to me. I know everything because he cares for us cares for us. Jesus had been warning them for some time about what would happen when he, when he actually made it to Jerusalem. He would suffer at the hands of the chief priests and be crucified, but he would also rise again the third day. And so he says it to them straight, that this would initially cause them some sorrow. They would actually cry and weep. And, and their sorrow would actually be irritated by, by the joy that others would have because of Jesus' death. The world around them would actually be rejoicing the religious rulers would believe that they had finally beat Jesus. They didn't like their evil hearts exposed by Jesus' teaching. The, the world that does not know God and rejected Jesus would be glad that he was no longer alive. And so he's telling them, listen, there's going to be some hard times. You're going to have sorrow in your hearts. And he uses the analogy of a woman giving birth. And he tries to explain this, and and what a great analogy it was. Anyone present at the birth of a child knows that the birth itself is pretty unpleasant. There's sorrow in it all. I remember when our first child was born, and and I asked my wife if I could share this story and a picture. There you go. (laughs) But when Mylea was born, when when Missy's water broke, uh, we were like, okay, pack her bags, get to the birthing center. And it was like, oh, we're ready to go. And the, and the midwife goes, yeah, you're still smiling. You're not ready. <laughs> and it was another like 10 to 15 hours before she actually gave birth. And, and I thought to myself, well, our water broke. Like we should have the baby anytime soon. She goes, no, you're gonna, you will know when it's time. And I remember going, okay, I'm just going to stay right here next to her face and, and be there. And, and, and I remember the midwife pulling me down, like, no, you've got to catch your baby when she comes out. And and the immense pain, but right after Mylea came, came into the world, she puts her on Misty's chest, and there was joy. There was a whole lot of pain, <laughs> but there was joy. This was right after. And that's the illustration that he's giving. He's telling them, listen, there's sorrow that you're going to experience, but there is going to be joy. I remember Misty actually said, we aren't having any more kids. <laughs> Then we had three more. I think Jesus is actually referring, he says, the joy that that, that will come and no one will be able to take away your joy. He's referring to them seeing him physically after the resurrection, but also knowing that there's going to be a promise of his Holy Spirit that they would receive. He would no longer be with them every day, but they would have joy again because they would see him again, and, and no one would be able to take that joy they would be joyful because he was alive again. I think all of us would, be, would have that same reaction. That day they would see Jesus after the resurrection and also bring about some other changes that he points out to us in, act, in verse 23 and 24. What does he say? Let's read that there. He says, in them and you and me. I'm sorry, wrong one. Here we go. Wrong chapter. I don't have my glasses on. I had to get glasses and uh, it just kind of hit me. All of a sudden, I'm reading my Bible, and I can't read anymore. But I didn't want to wear them this morning because I'm still young. I'm trying to prove, prove to myself that I can still do this. He says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Many things that Jesus had taught them that confused them at the moment would actually make sense after the resurrection. And, and, and so even this idea of actually having this relationship with, with the Father will have changed too because of Christ. They will be able to pray to the Father directly in Jesus' name. That was, that was not the way they had prayed up until this point, but it would be the way they were to pray moving forward. Jesus' death and resurrection would have secured their redemption. Their prayers now would be answered. Hebrews 4 tells us that because Jesus now is our great high priest, that we can what? We can come boldly to his throne of grace. We can have confidence in prayer because of Jesus. And so this idea of praying or asking in Jesus' name is, is actually to pray that it would be done according to his will. His name. There's power in his name. It it is is communicating with our creator, with our father because of Jesus. We have confidence in him. He says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And he's telling them, this is what you're going to experience moving forward. He says there's going to be sorrow, there's going to be weeping, and then there will be joy, and you're going to experience. Have you, ever, have you ever gone to the Lord in prayer, and your heart is so heavy, and there's sorrow, and there's like, you're just, you don't know what else to do, but all you know to do is to cast all your care on him, and then you come out, and there's joy, because you know what? That he cares for you. That he says that if you come to him in, in his name, he hears you and he knows. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples and helping them understand. But then we move into the next part. And I want to spend the, the rest of the time here in this section because I think it's important for us to really understand this. In verse 25, he says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. But the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you this way. I'll tell you plainly about the Father. In the day you ask him my name, and he says, I do not say to you, and we just read this part, but he says his disciples are saying this, ah, now you are speaking plainly. Now we know that you know all things. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. That is why we believe that you have come from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? And then he says, behold, guess what? The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. They would soon run and leave Jesus alone. But the Father would remain with Jesus. He would not be alone, even when abandoned by his followers. In a very short time, when Jesus would speak these words, they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus would pray and then be arrested, and then they would scatter and return to wherever they'd been staying in Jerusalem because of their fear of what might happen to them. Men fail, but God never fails. Have you ever had someone fail you? Someone you trusted, cared for, loved. 
Jesus comforts them even in their failure that he knows is going to come. And he tells them plainly in verse 33 that he's revealing these things in advance to them so that they would know peace in the middle of tribulation because Jesus has overcome the world. And so just three words here as we break down verse 33. And the first one is peace. In me, there's peace. When Jesus says there's peace in him, he's saying there's no more peace in the temple. There's no more peace in the sacrificial system or the law. There's no more peace in priests and holding up your badge of honor because you were a Jew. By all means, there's no peace if you try to even, try to even get close to the Romans so that you won't, you'll be persecuted less. Jesus is definitely saying that peace is in him only. And this peace is not the absence of war. It actually is defined this way. It's wholeness, it's oneness, it's harmony, it's togetherness. It's the life that God intended. It's what Adam and Eve experienced when they walked in the Garden of Eden. Peace is this relational security. It's, it's saying, do whatever you have to do. God hasn't failed me, and he won't fail me yet. That's peace. That's the peace that he's saying, in me, you will have peace. In life, there always seems to be places where we lack peace. Maybe you're entering 2024, and, and you're lacking peace in relationships. There's so much unsettledness, and maybe there's just some, some difficult things that have happened over the holidays. Or maybe just going into 2024, you're, there's, there's lack of peace at work, and there's unsettledness in what the future holds, and parenting and your marriage or physical pain or maybe there's just anger at God and Jesus's words here are, are as simple as they are liberating he says in me only is there peace it's available it's possible it's actually within reach and yet we still often just tire ourselves out by trying to do it in our own way in our own strength we try to find it elsewhere. And here Jesus is asking his friends, the people that he's just spent time with, to, to trust him and rely on him wholeheartedly. And he asked the same of us, and, and yet there's still a catch. There's something that stands in the way of actually having this peace and experiencing the peace. And you know what it is? It's, it's the next phrase. It's the next word. It's tribulation. He says, in the world... You're going to have problems. John uses the word tribulation twice in his gospel, and both are actually used in this chapter. The word is about pain and pressure or suffering. Sometimes it's translated as affliction or trouble. And so Jesus is making a contrast here. He says, in me there's peace. In the world, in contrast, there's tribulation. It's not just about having peace in general, but it's having an unwavering and unflinching peace as we live in this troubled world that's trying to actually suffocate us. The, world, the word world in John is a specific idea. It's, it's this broken, broken order. It's sinful people putting in place sinful systems to gain meaning and, and, to, and purpose. It's, the, it's like the Tower of Babel 
there are two great evils when it comes to the world. One, when followers, followers of Jesus try to make the world their primary source of comfort and peace. We look to the things of the world to help us. This will give me satisfaction. This will help me. It actually belittles this peace that Jesus is offering. And then two, when the world is the source of the actual trouble that we have and the pressure and persecution, we're actually wrong to run away from it. If we do that, we operate out of fear. I love what we sang this morning because there's only one way to actually do this. It's to stand in him and on him. He's the solid rock. But the whole point of Jesus' peace is that it can give you calm in the middle of whatever life throws at you. The peace you get from escaping a problem is usually just, just a natural consequence. But still, Jesus is saying that he came to give sanity in our suffering, in our problems. I don't know about you, but when I'm stuck in something, I'm like struggling and there's no peace. Like, it just makes me a little insane. <laughs> like, I start doing things, I'm like, did I just do that? Like, my whole family just looks at me like, that's weird. Like, it's crazy. But Jesus is saying that he came to give us this sanity and suffering and joy and sorrow, clarity and uncertainty and peace in the middle of the fire. I got this quote and I thought it's, it's great. It says, gospel peace doesn't run from pain. It actually changes the meaning. Gospel peace doesn't run from the pain. It actually changes the meaning, changes what the future holds. Why? Because peace is, that is lasting is relational. It's not circumstantial. It's this lasting peace that we have because of Jesus and trusting and following Jesus. It, it is not temporal. The problems are temporal. The tribulation is temporal, but the good news that Jesus offers us at peace is that isn't rooted, it's not rooted in our feelings, it's not rooted in our reputation or our situation or who's elected into the office or, or whether or not we're scheduled to really be persecuted, and therefore it allows us to change how we understand life. He says, in this world there's going to be problems, but because of Jesus you get to reinterpret the meaning. as yet another way to, to really know his love. The last time I was here, I was in, we were in John 15, talking about abiding in his love. And the love that the Father had for the Son is unbelievable. And so when he goes back and he says, I'm not going to be alone because the Father's with me. My Father is with me. But this love that he has, the, the fact that in this, in this world full of problems and trials and tribulations, that you can interpret his peace because of his love for you, that nothing, nothing will be able to separate you. His forgiveness, his guidance. Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 4, and it's a way to fully know the peace of God. And he tells the church there, Philippi, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And guess what? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, this is what's, what it's going to do. It's going to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ 
Jesus. And then he says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, number three, he says, take heart. In me, there's peace. In the world, there's going to be trials and tribulations and troubles. But he says, guess what? There's victory. He says, I have overcome the world. This is, this, is the, this is the ultimate reason why we can have peace, what Jesus was going to face on the cross, but knowing the fact that he was going to defeat sin and death. This is the reason why, not just one day when we die because Jesus has overcome the world, but actually right now. This is the only time in John's gospel that he uses this word overcome. And it means victory. It means the bad guys have been defeated. It's done. They've been conquered. It was originally a military term, but the primary way John uses the word is is of the victorious lamb that we would read later in Revelation. And how is the lamb victorious in Revelation? Not by political force or violence, but by sacrificial death on the cross. And this is not a random lamb. This is the Passover lamb. It's not no accident that the last thing that Jesus says to his friends on, on the Passover night is, take heart. I have overcome the world because he knows what's going to happen. He knows his cross that's coming, and the resurrection will make it all make sense. And so this is how we can heed his final command. He says, take heart. Some translations say, take courage. Uh, One other version says, be of good cheer. It means be brave. Have composure and conviction. Entering into 2024, have boldness. Jesus wins. We fail, but but he will never fail. He's always with us. And and guess what? We can take heart because he he has provided the victory. There are many trials that will test our faith. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what a day is going to bring forth this year. We don't know what's going to happen in this room. But yet as each trial comes, those who are truly saved will see the faithfulness of God and their faith will grow greater. The Christian life is about endurance and persevering to the end and not because of anything in ourselves, but because Jesus has overcome the world. This is my prayer. So many unknowns, so many rhythms that are completely different for us in, 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 in 2023. But all of that is all part of God's providential plan because he knows all of us. He knows where we're at. And he's, he's committed to us being completed, which means he's going to work in us according to his good pleasure and help us to have a greater understanding and a greater awareness of his peace in our hearts. I don't have to understand but I have to trust. He says this, Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's how the world views us, that they should kill us, that we're not worth anything, that we should be slaughtered. That's how the world views us. No, in all things, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The great 18th century theologian and and pastor, Jonathan Edwards, was someone who, who grew to have a deep and genuine faith in Christ, and that's why we love reading what he writes, but one author describes him this way. Jonathan Edwards simply walked with God. His mind was fixed on things above. He exalted in the world no further than such exaltation brought his mind to rest on another world. Edwards was out of place in this world, blessedly out of place. How did he get this way? It wasn't through ease and comfort. It was actually through growing in maturity and learning to see God's goodness in the providential, God-ordained, Father-filtered hard times that tested his faith, including rejection and public humiliation in his early ministry. He once wrote to a friend, I have much to learn to behave as a pilgrim and stranger on earth. If we would have Christ, we must be cut down as to our worldly happiness. We naturally place our happiness in the things of this world, yet to part with all the world and sell all for Christ is like death to us. I mentioned earlier about Dane Ortland, and he says that this process is often like the waves in the ocean. How many have ever been to the ocean before? Right now in Hawaii, it's actually starting the big waves in the ocean. I mean, last year was unbelievable. The, um, uh, at Waimea Bay, the big competition was almost 50 feet high. But he says it's often like the waves in the oceans. When you go out into the ocean, you feel the waves tugging and pulling at your ankles and then your legs as you go deeper in your waist. These are like smaller trials that kind of knock us off balance, but we quickly recover on our own and we can be tempted to continue to trust in our own strength or the things of this world. I don't know if that happened to you. You're standing there like, oh, I can do this. And, and I always tell people, first of all, don't ever turn your back on the ocean because you don't know what's going to happen. And then secondly, you think you can handle it, and all of a sudden there's a bigger wave in that set that comes and it takes you over and you actually can't handle it. But he says this about, about this illustration. He says, those who live into their later years and are quietly walking with the Lord from a posture of fundamental trust, have often weathered something deeper. At some point in their lives, a wave washed over them that could not be outjumped, and somehow they survived. They softened rather than hardened. 
We must come to a point in life where we suddenly, for the first time, bank all that we are on Christ. Our true trust must be proved. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He says, take heart. I've overcome the world. These disciples are about to encounter a wave that they've never experienced before that's going to swallow them up. Jesus is not promising to remove it. He's actually telling them to endure it. And, and, and he's going to say, endure even the challenge that would come in the early years in Acts in the church. But he says, guess what? There will be peace in me. And later he tells him, he says, I'm going to give you my spirit to help you. My prayer this morning is that you would have peace in your heart as you walk into 2024 with Jesus especially when you feel like you're overwhelmed by a wave that you can't outjump. Trust fully in him. Give your heart fully to him. Taste and see how good he is. And later on in, in Jonathan Edwards' life, he preached this. He says, have you had that divine comfort that has seemed to heal your soul and put life and strength into you and give you peace after trouble and rest after labor and pain? Have you tasted that spiritual food, that bread from heaven that is so sweet and so satisfying, so much better than than the richest earthly treasures? Seek him, Jesus. He has overcome the world. I don't know what's going on in your life, and I don't know what's going to happen in your life, but perhaps things are going well for you right now. If so, praise God for his mercy and his grace. I can assure you that difficult times will come because the scripture has made it clear, and Jesus has told us that and told his disciples that. Because he says also in 2 Timothy 3 that all who strive to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? will be persecuted. Maybe you're in the middle of a trial and your faith is actually being tested right now. Look to Jesus. His promises are true. He's preparing a place for us. He will come again to take us to be with him forever. And he's given us his spirit to to live in us, to teach us. Sometimes we don't know what to pray to help us to, to pray to him, to depend on him. He'll strengthen us, enable us to serve him even in the middle of the most difficult of circumstances. Whatever the trial is, we have a promise of the future that is unbelievable. It's pretty awesome. And what happens and what, what happens in the world, that this wave that comes, all you think about is that wave and you don't remember what's coming after In the world, there's tribulation, but guess what? Take heart. Keep your eyes on Jesus and eternity. Rather than reacting in panic or doubt, those who know Jesus will will feel and understand this sense of peace, the confidence that's inspired by knowing who God is, that nothing you experience catches catches God by surprise. He knows it all. Knowing that Christ's victory overshadows it all. Did you bow your heads this morning? And close your eyes. The, the band's going to come up and, and our prayer team's going to come up. Everything that people pursue can be found in Jesus. 
Everyone's looking for joy. Everyone here in the valley is looking for hope, for peace. Everyone wants to be happy to find, uh, they want to be in a meaningful relationship where they can be loved, peace with themselves, peace with God. When we seek those things outside of Christ, we will have trouble because everything apart from Christ doesn't last. But Jesus makes this awesome declaration to his disciples that he will die, but he'll be raised up. He will leave them, but he'll give them joy and give you peace. And there's just a few questions I'm just going to ask you. Maybe with the help of the Spirit, you could help your heart and encourage you. And if you need someone to pray with, you can come up this morning. Are you worried about something? Are you worried about what's going to happen in 2024? Do you understand and believe what Christ has done for you? His death on the cross has, has overcome the world. His resurrection has defeated sin and death. Do you know the peace that's only found in Jesus? Maybe your heart is troubled. And maybe as you reflect on 2023, it's a good time to go, man, what, what are the prayers that Jesus has answered because I prayed in his name? And then, Lord, there's some big prayers I'm going to bring to you in 2024. But this is an awesome opportunity for Church of the Valley, this Church of the Valley this year, to be followers of Jesus. That as you live your lives in this valley, many people will look at you and ask, what's going on with you? Because there's something that's unexplainable in you. It's a supernatural peace. And I believe early on in John, John chapter 15, that we are supposed to testify to what God has done. That means we live it. To tell others the story of what God has done and speak the amazing wonders of God. And we testify the faithfulness of God at the end of 2024. Your story will build this church up and the people of Church of the Valley will become more encouraged because of this truth. He has overcome the world. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son who even demonstrated such great patience with his disciples and, and knowing all things. His, and, and, and as he was leading to the cross, was patient in, in explaining to them and helping them to understand and, and then helping them to see the things that would come and giving them promises of hope and peace that would, would rock them pretty soon, the, 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 the running away and not knowing what, what would happen, but yet seeing you again the courage that then would explode to the church as a whole that would, would many people would come to know you. Father, we thank you for your gospel and your son. And I pray that your gospel peace would live inside of us and would change us and maybe uh, in 2024, whatever may happen, we would cling to this, that in you is peace. And you have overcome the world. And so we give you praise and we thank you for your namesake. Amen.